I was little, I used to love to go out and visit my great aunt and a great uncle. They lived way out in the Mojave Desert on a ranch. They raised chickens and most of their neighbors had ranches too. So they were big properties and it was just fun to be out with so much space. But one of my favorite things to do was to walk down with my aunt to get her mail because it took a little while to get down there and I really liked her. And so we were walking down one day to get the mail and I ran ahead and I got to her mailbox and I opened the mailbox and this woman across the street screamed at me to get away from that mailbox and I had no business being there. And it scared me so bad, I remember just bursting into tears. And by that time, my aunt had caught up. And when she saw that my aunt was with me, then it all changed. She understood that she had made a mistake, but the context that she first saw was some little kid that she did not know looked like he was breaking into somebody else's mailbox. When the context included my aunt who, may, who owned the mailbox, then it changed her perception of the reality dramatically. I'm still scarred, but she saw the context and it changed things. And I share that because context oftentimes is super important in trying to figure out what the Bible is saying, particularly when there's a challenging passage. And today we have a challenging passage that context is going to help us understand. So we're looking at Matthew 21 verses 18 and following. It says, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What in the world is going on here? If you just take this passage on its own, first of all, it seems like two completely unrelated stories, where the first one makes Jesus look petty and mean, and the second one just doesn't ring true in our experience. And since we know that Jesus isn't petty and mean, and since we know that the Bible is God's word, and it's true, as the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, there's got to be something else going on in the passage. So a couple of things that I want to mention just right up front. First, the Bible is true. It's just not always obvious what it means. And sometimes the temptation is to go, yeah, I have no idea what that means, and keep moving. And sometimes it's just plain hard to understand. And this, page, this uh, passage is just plain hard to understand. But because you've got some time and I've got some time, we're going to take a stab at it. So context is king. Right before this passage, Jesus is in the temple. And he does something that is pretty dramatic. He cleanses the temple of the money changers. Now, you might be familiar with the story. If if you're not familiar with the story, there are several different courts or areas within the temple, and there was one court that was set aside for Gentiles, so people who weren't part of Israel, but they had room there to worship. But what happened was that they needed to change money, and that was legitimate, 
And most people who came from faraway places couldn't bring a sacrificial animal with them, whether it was a sheep or a goat or a cow or a bird. And so those needed to be provided and they needed some place. And so that all happened in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus goes in and he starts turning the tables over and throwing people out. And it's a pretty big to do, pretty dramatic stuff. And after Jesus does this, then we have this passage. And after this passage, he goes back to the temple where he created the stir the day before. And he gives some warnings there. He teaches, he confronts people about how they've rejected God and what the consequences are for rejecting God. And sandwiched in between the two appearances at the temple is this story of the fig tree. So Jesus is in the temple, he goes home, back to Bethany, goes to bed, and early the next morning, he goes back to Jerusalem, but on the way, apparently he didn't have breakfast, and he's hungry, and he sees this fig tree by the road. And he goes up to it, but he doesn't find anything on it except for leaves. And so he says, may you never bear fruit again, and the tree withers and dies. So when I read this passage, the first thing that I think about is how grateful I am that we have brunch right after church. Because I remember when my kids were little, when church was over, my kids needed to eat. And most days what we tried to do is just get home before the meltdown occurred. That's my meltdown, not theirs. Because hangry isn't good. Hangry, assume you know, but if you don't, is hungry plus angry. You get hungry, you become angry, you're hangry. So is being hangry the explanation of what happens here today? Jesus is hungry, he's a little out of sorts, and he thinks he's going to get fed because he doesn't, he gets mad, so he curses the tree and it dies. And the moral of the story is whenever Jesus is hangry, watch out. But as I said before, it just doesn't sound like Jesus. Jesus had every expectation that if the fig tree had leaves on it, that there would be fruit. That's what attracted him to it. And when he gets there, there isn't any fruit. There were leaves, but no fruit. And the fact that there were leaves, but no fruit, didn't mean that he was just too early there was going to be fruit. If there were leaves and no fruit, it meant that the tree wasn't going to produce any fruit that year. So he's walking along, and it looks like a fig tree. It has leaves like a fig tree. It looked like it should have fruit on it. But on closer inspection, there was no fruit. It didn't produce figs. And if it didn't produce figs, it wasn't fulfilling its purpose. Now, we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you'll remember, he's talked about trees a couple of different times. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. If a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, or if it doesn't produce fruit at all, it's only good for one thing, firewood. So it's important to think about this those teachings in this passage. But there's another thing that isn't as apparent to us, although the disciples would have gotten it. Trees are also mentioned in the Old Testament. And most importantly to our story, fig trees are mentioned in the Old Testament, mostly in books of prophecy. And all of a sudden, we're getting a whole bunch of clues as to what might be going on. So in the book of Joel, famous book of prophecy, a fig tree represents Israel. And then in Jeremiah, another prophet, 8.13, Jeremiah writes this, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, 
there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So in these books on prophecy, the fig tree is Israel. And as an act of judgment, because they've rejected God, they aren't being faithful, God says he's going to take away their harvest. There will be leaves on the tree, but there won't be figs. What he gave them, he's going to take away. So what Jesus does with the fig tree isn't the act of a hangry man. What Jesus does is an act of prophecy. Or think of it as an object lesson. Jesus is saying that the prophecy of Jeremiah is being fulfilled. I said that this story was sandwiched between two appearances in the temple. When Jesus goes back to the temple, he gives the ruler some warning, which culminate in this verse, 2143. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So what you really have is a devastating indictment of the established religion of what's going on at the temple, of God's people at the time. God gave his people the gift of knowing him, being his special people so that the whole world could be blessed through them. But they failed over and over and over again. It's pretty much why we have the last half of the Old Testament. It's like God finally gets to the point of saying, you people have failed at producing fruit. And now the kingdom is being taken away from you. So now, in our passage, Israel is the fruit tree that didn't produce fruit. The fruit should have been there, but it wasn't. There were leaves, it looked like a healthy tree, it looked like it had fruit, but on closer inspection, there was no fruit. It wasn't doing what a fig tree was supposed to do, and that is produce figs. So this is what's happening in the story then. Jesus is acting out what God is doing. God is creating a new Israel. He's creating a new community. And that's one of the things we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is creating a new community. And this is a demonstration of that. So at this point, I think we need to stop for a second and think. If Israel was the fig tree and they didn't produce fruit, and so God took the kingdom from them and gave it to a new people who will produce fruit, then we're now the fig tree. And I think it would be worth our while to camp on that for just a minute. Because God is expecting us now to be producing figs, to be producing fruit. And so I think it's worth asking, are we producing fruit? Well, first of all, what is the fruit that Jesus is looking for? That'll help us. Because if you went to the temple that day and asked the Jewish leaders if they were producing fruit, they probably would have said yes. But in reality, it was only leaves. It was window dressing, not really anything of substance. So what fruit is Jesus looking for? Well, first let's look at it in context. The first temple story, Matthew 21 and 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So here you have these people, the religious leaders, who are supposed to be leading people to God, ultimately leading people to Jesus. But instead what they were doing was just propping up a system that basically perpetuated the status quo. They had a comfortable life, they knew what to expect, and they just wanted to keep it that way. And they were literally to the Gentiles saying, there is no room at our temple for you. There is no room in God for you because we need the extra space. So, sorry, because we're busy about the business of us. We don't want the wonderful things that Jesus is doing happening here. We don't want children making noise. That's just annoying. And all this betrays that they'd forgotten why they existed. So it was really easy to justify what they wanted to do. I mean, all of that made perfect sense. They had to have money changers. They had to have people to buy animals. I mean, but what happened was because they had lost their moorings, these things became much bigger than they ever were meant to be and crowded out the true plan and purpose that God had. I mean, nobody ever says, I'm going to actively oppose the will of God. But oftentimes we confuse our will with God's will and then it makes perfect sense to do what we want. So all they had was leaves, window dressing, nothing of substance, and leaves will not feed spiritually starving people. They were all show. They were no fruit. And then I think we can safely add the most famous passage in the Bible about fruit, Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the type of fruit that Jesus is looking for. Is that the type of fruit we're producing? Are we focused on the plan and the purpose of God, or are we about the business of us? Are we keeping the main thing the main thing, or have we let other issues take that place? Do we look good from a distance, but on closer examination, is it just leaves, window dressing? When you think about the fruit of the Spirit, are those the words that people sometimes use to describe you? Would they use those words to describe us as a church? Would people look at you or us and say, you know what, they're loving. They have this deep sense of joy and peace. They don't give up on people. They act kindly. They do good. They're faithful to their commitments and to one another. They're not mean and angry. They control their actions and their emotions. They really care about other people. They reflect well on Jesus. You can see that what they claim to believe is what they actually believe because that's how they live. Is that what people say about us? Because if they do, then we're bearing fruit. And that's when we experience the blessing of God. And now it's time to tie in the next part of our scripture. Verse 20, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So the disciples are pretty easily distracted and pretty easily impressed. They're like, wow, did you see how quickly that thing died after he cursed it? And as often happens, they kind of missed the point. But Jesus answered their questions. How did that happen? 
And then he brings it around to the point that Jesus is really trying to make. So, back to context. Even though Jesus is talking about prayer, this is not primarily in a teaching about prayer. Jesus does a lot of teaching about prayer, but he does it in other places. This is in the context about God's plan and God's purpose, about being fruitful, about being faithful, about not uh, rejecting God. So that context changes the meaning because it's not primarily teaching about prayer. So first, what this passage doesn't mean. What this passage doesn't mean is you have to work up a lot of faith. I found out that trees had individual leaves when I was in fourth grade because that was the year that I got glasses and I could finally see that trees weren't just clumps of green, that they were actually made up of little leaves. It was mind-blowing at the time. So it was fun to be able to actually see, but I hated wearing glasses. And I primarily hated wearing glasses because it made playing sports hard. I was swimming at the time, and I was playing basketball. And swimming, you know, just trying not to hit the end of the pool, but that wasn't that hard except you couldn't see. Playing basketball, that was a little bit more challenging. And my glasses got broke a couple of times because, you know, you go up, somebody comes down with an elbow, and there go the glasses. And so my parents' answer to this was to get me these really heavy-duty black plastic glasses that looked like they were, you know, issued by the United States Navy or something like that. So I had to wear them, and I hated them. And then I came across this verse. If you have faith and do not doubt, you can cast, you can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done if you believe. And I cannot tell you how often I prayed with all of the faith that I could muster that I wouldn't have to wear glasses anymore, that God would heal my vision. And I've talked to other people who have used this passage to pray for loved ones who weren't healed but died instead. And so you kind of end up with confusion, maybe even guilt. Did I not have enough faith? Did some doubt creep in? But that's not what this passage is about. This is not about us and the faith that we can you know, muster up on our own. This is about God because faith is a gift from God and God wouldn't give us X minus one of faith and then say, sorry, you don't have enough faith. That's not what this passage is really about. It's about God. And Jesus is using a phrase that would have been well known at the time. You can say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. It's like some of the sayings that we have, like when pigs fly or she's as old as the hills. And it's also the same with when a camel can grow through the eye of a needle. Nobody really expects that those things are true. She really isn't as old as the hills. Nobody is waiting to see a pig fly. It's just an illustration that illustrates something. She's really old. That thing will never happen. Or the potential is unlimited. So Jesus is essentially saying, yeah, the power to curse a fig tree is pretty impressive. But it's really small potatoes to what the power of God can do because God can do seemingly impossible things. This is a focus on the power of God. It's not a promise of magical powers. If you, you know, put enough faith and lack of doubt together, then you can magically do whatever you want to, including move mountain ranges. That's not what it's about. If you have faith, ties it to God. 
It's not about how much faith you have. It's about having faith in God because that's where the power comes in. Not because we have faith, but because of who our faith is in. There are some things that might look impossible, but they aren't with God. There's also a corporate aspect to this because all of the pronouns in Jesus' teaching here are plural. They are you all. If you all have faith, not only can you all do what is done to the fig tree, you all can say to this mountain, if you all believe, you all will receive whatever you all ask for in prayer. It's about the praying power of God's people together. And that really takes us right to the context. Jesus is establishing a new community that's gathered around the plan and the purpose of God, praying according to God's will, focused on his plan and purpose, and burying the fruit of the kingdom. And if it does that, it will tap into the power of God, and the possibilities are unlimited. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what words would people use to describe you? Number two, what do those words say about the fruit you're producing? Number three, how closely would you say your priorities align with the plan and the purpose of God? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.